G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to Footyology. This is the summer edition and uh, we're here to talk a bit of footy, a bit of other stuff, a bit of life matters. Uh, we're going to go back in time and check out the um, best music, movies and TV, in our opinion, from a selected year, which we will reveal in due course. And, of course, the world-famous rant-off with which we'll finish, as I say, a very good morning on a very balmy uh, Melbourne summer's... Oh, we're not in summer yet, are we? We're nearly at summer. Um, anyway, hello, Mark Fine. How are you, Finey? Good. How are you? I'm back from a very full weekend. I was out on Bass Strait amongst other places fishing on the weekend, my first overnight fishing trip, and... I've just got my land legs back. Takes a lot out of you. It was great fun, but did you get seasick? No, I didn't get seasick, but I got sick of the sea. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does. And when I say that, I don't know if you've seen any of those TV shows where they go fishing for crayfish and crabs and various other things on the high seas. But I don't know how people can live a life at sea. It is very different to being on land. It really is very draining. Well, it's sort of like isn't it's like the uh, opposite of uh, being claustrophobic, isn't it? There's sort of like too much space around you. Oh, no, not really. I felt very claustrophobic. Yeah, oh, there's did you? a huge amount of space, but none that you can you know water, water everywhere, and not a drop you can walk on. Yeah, true. So, Unless you're Jesus. <laughs> yeah, potentially, possibly. You don't want to go down that track. No, do no, you? I don't. This much I will say, that people who work and live on the water work very, very hard. Okay. Because I'm good mates with the captain of the boat that I was on, and it's physical work. It's really, I, I admire them. I admire them greatly. So next time you tuck into a piece of fish or eat a prawn, it was hard won. Well, I don't know about you, but if I was uh, coming off a, a long sea trip, I reckon the first thing I'd be wanting to munch down on is a fat, juicy hamburger, finding. I disembarked at Hastings. It's a long way from Albert Park, 144 Bridport Street, the home of Andrew's Hamburgers. I wish the old teleporter had been invented. That's I would have been there in a minute. I promise you that. I was, I was hungry. And there's no Andrews hamburgers in Hastings. More the pity. Oh. Really would loved would have loved one. Had to go to a drive-through, not of the burger place, but of the chicken place. Mm. No. no, no, not by comparison. Pales <laughs> pales into mediocrity. No, you needed the Andrews for me. You needed the tender meat patty, the uh, sumptuous, uh, but yet still firm buns, the crisp lettuce, the tomato ripe and dripping. Uh, beetroot, uh, if uh, if so required. Egg, of course. Yeah. Oh, the main thing is each one's made for you individually. You Tender, can see it being, lovingly. Well, you can see it being made. I, there's a big difference between a burger made for you and a burger that you buy that could 
be made for one of 300 people. I'll tell you, the other thing I'd crave if I'd been at sea for a couple of days would be, as you say, a bit of uh, space, a bit of firm land, and nowhere are the foundations more firm, finally, than in a Nick Spartel's <laughs> uh, house. No houseboats, just houses. Oh, I was craving a house, not a houseboat, <laughs> on Saturday night. I would have loved to have uh, put my head down in one of uh, Nick Spartel Hardwick build bedrooms. Oh, gee. Boy, the old bunk on the moving ship ain't the same. I cannot speak highly enough of their work. And if they ever built houseboats, that would be the one I'd buy. All right. Well, we've got uh, plenty to talk about, some interesting topics to discuss today. And uh, let's not waste any more time. Let's get straight into it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. Okay, so I wanted to kick off this week, Finey. Um, we've got the AFL National Draft coming up this week, of course. A lot of interest in that, as per usual, as uh, clubs select the creme de la creme of largely junior football talent throughout the country. Um and in the lead up to that, uh, there's been some interesting stuff said and, and written in the papers and uh, a particularly interesting article in The Age on Saturday by Jake Nile. Um, Jake did a very good job on this piece and it was basically looking at the what has become almost by stealth, the uh, takeover of the AFL junior, uh, junior, not development, but junior talent pool by the private school sector. Um, really recommend you have a read of this piece because even if it's something you've observed yourself, just to get a forensic look at it was quite revealing. And uh, I've got to say, Fanny, and I'm probably nailing my uh, class cultural colours to the mast here, but I was really, really disturbed by what I read. And it is basically a drift that has happened from, um, insofar as AFL talent goes, from the public to the private school sector over the last two decades, sort of post-2000, because there was a period there, if you look back in the, certainly the 80s, even into the 90s, there weren't that many elite products from the private school system making the AFL, and there were still plenty of boys who came out of government schools and were recruited from uh, local clubs and then, of course, from 92 onwards, the TAC, now NAB under 18, competition. But this, um, I guess, recruiting binge of the more elite private schools has become so powerful that uh, whilst it's been great for them, obviously, and to the point where I think we're going to see the first two picks in Wednesday night's draft come from the same school, Carey Grammar, which wasn't always uh, uh, noted as a, a good football school, so good luck to them. But just uh, before you chip in, just a, a few key numbers here. So um, there's been a few people investigating this, and in 2017, uh, 25% of all players drafted in the national draft came from just 11 schools, all part of the APS group of schools. And from a pool of uh, 2,755 Australian schools, which go to year 12. So 25% came from just 11 schools out of getting up towards 3,000 school, high schools or secondary schools in the country. Um Year 12, 2000, last year in year 12, the breakup of um, 
sectors, uh, educationally wise, uh, 55% of year 12 students attended a state school, 24% attended a Catholic school, 21% an independent school. But the AFL lists, uh, if you looked at the background of the players on the list, that was 39% coming from independent schools, 31% from Catholic schools, and just 30% from state schools. So, um, you know, look, it's, it, it, there's obviously a broader topic here, and I hasten to add here that a lot of this comes back to uh, government funding of education and where that money goes. And, uh, you know, I, I came through the state school system. I'm a big believer in it. Uh, philosophically, I tend to believe that, you know, um, independent schools should get a very limited, if any, funding from the government. Um, if they want to subsidise themselves, fine, but I don't see why they should necessarily get that extra kick along. But it is having a pronounced effect on where our junior football talent is coming from. And uh, I thought it was quite disturbing reading. First of all, subsidise themselves doesn't make sense for independent schools. In what in what sense? Well, they're not subsidising themselves; they fund themselves. It's All right, not, yeah, wrong choice of word. I'm just saying that the subsidies for independent schools allow them to offer programs like top level or elite sporting programs. That that money, the equivalent for that money, because state schools and I've got, I'm, I think I'm well placed. I've got. Uh, a foot in both camps. I've got a daughter at a private school. I've got a son just finished at a state school and another one going through a state school. So it'll be two and two, two private, two state schools. The money that is being used maybe for elite sporting programs at state schools is desperately needed for classrooms, for, for basic decent education. So you're right, there is funding issues there. No question. This was a... This was Jake Nile at his best. I mean, this was a long, maybe even a touch exhausting, but brilliantly researched, comprehensive article that, to me, um, stated the bleeding obvious. And the reason it states the bleeding obvious, but it <laughs> does a bit it, of a backhanded comment. No, 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 no. It doesn't. It, it lays it bare. When I say states the bleeding obvious, when you think about it, state schools are not and will no longer be um, able to, to cater for the sporting needs of their students. Well, they're, they're, to the point where we're now building vertical state schools. They don't have any play. They, they go up. They're, you do year seven or year 10 on floor 13. Well, yeah, look, there's no doubt about that. I mean, if I go back to, okay, I was in secondary school from 1977 until 82, now, we, I went to John Gardner High School, now Auburn High School. We didn't have uh, a big sporting program by any means, but we had a competitive football team. But you had an oval. Uh, actually, we didn't. We had to go up to the local park. Okay. But, it, you know, it was just down the road. But we had a competitive football team. There was interest in how we fared. Um, you know, there were teachers. There were enough resources for teachers to be able to you know, take the team. Although having said that, like we didn't have training sessions or anything, but these days, from what I hear, you know, um, teaching resources are so thin on the ground, they can't even spare teachers to, uh, you know, take the time out from classes to supervise matches. They wouldn't. There's no thought of it. Glenn Ira College, where my boys attend, is a big school. 
no, no way would they have a football team. They just don't have a football side. I think if you play sport in at the school, you know, up in year 12, they're only representative, they're only team that compete against other schools. Might have been a futsal team. Yeah. There's a couple of, there's the changing face of state school education. Take a school like Melbourne High, which was once a beacon for footballs yep. to the point where Richmond, who had a number of players come down from Sunraysia, Mildura and surrounds, those students, those kids were placed in Melbourne High well, School. Dale Waitman, Mark Lee, the yeah. two best examples. Well, even when I remember when I was doing HSC, we, um, you know, our big rival was Melbourne High. We had a cracking game against Melbourne High in 1982 in which Paul Abbott, uh, dual Hawthorne Premiership player was our star player, and yep. we I think they beat us by a few goals in the end. But oh yeah, they were absolutely. I know where you're going here. The uh, the racial profile. Yeah, and, of, and of it's just a, it's just a fact. Look, yeah. Melbourne High is a beautiful school, uh, built on a sloping, you know, sloping grounds that slope down to this beautiful oval, which I've played cricket at, not football, but I've seen plenty of football and cricket played there. Melbourne High School is now predominantly a school where uh, young Asian students and subcontin- you know, Indian students, etc., um, first generation, that would make up the bulk of that student population. And well, surely that's also the case at independent schools as well. I, I, I don't. Well, private schools, less so. Mm, okay. Less so. I, I, I think the. Um, sort of backgrounds of students at Melbourne Grammar, uh, Brighton Grammar, Caulfield Grammar. Tends to be more Anglo-Saxon. They've they've remained similar. Now, here's, not that that's important, and we hope that kids from all backgrounds embrace Australian rules football, but in the short term, that hasn't quite happened. If you've got a, a child, boy or girl, who's talented at football, they will they will get a very favourable hearing at a private school, won't they? Well, the, the, the two things that, to my, from my observations, have really, you know, the ante's been upped several fold over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, are this, the offering of scholarships to talented yeah. kids who are in the public system to go private. Um, not only, obviously, locally, but uh, from, you know, say, Indigenous areas. I mean, Cyril Rioli famously went to Scotch. Um, Stephen May uh, was um, uh, taken by Melbourne Grammar. Um, and that's happening a lot. The other thing is that the with the money um, some of those schools have at their disposal, they're able to afford... Um, the absolute best in coaching, e.g. Matthew Lloyd has worked for Halebury for some time. Uh, Cameron Wing is involved. Um, Brad Green, I think, is the head of the Melbourne Grammar Football Program. And again, look, you know, I, I know some people will be listening to this and going, oh, you know, the, the politics of envy sort of thing, but... It's, I find it hard to separate the big broader issue from this issue. So why is it a bad thing? Why is it a... Why is it an issue or a problem? The- oh, this is a massive problem if our kids who are attending state schools don't have the uh, breadth of opportunity that kids who go to independent schools To do. play football? Yeah. Look, kids now are only really allowed to play one game of football at the weekend. 
So they play locally for their for their local team. No, well they? they don't. I mean, in Jake's article says that the the AFL has had some blues with the independent system about this, and they've developed sort of a, a informal hierarchy of football, which goes under eighteen championships number one on the priority priority list, but two is their school football commitments ahead of the NAB competition. Yeah, but that's at the elite level. Yeah, no, but let, let's talk yeah. about that because I've got a massive problem with that because you take the best kids out of that NAB competition and these people who are saying, well, if a kid's good enough at a state school, he can still go and play under-18s. Well, his, um, his competition or the strength of the competition he's playing in is being reduced by the unavailability of these kids who are going off to play school yeah, for that's it. At, that's at NAB level, NAB yeah. level. Yeah. For the, the normal process is that the student that is at a state school, if that school doesn't have a football program, which many don't now, he would, and he wouldn't even, that really wouldn't impact on his football because he's come up playing juniors, let's just say at Oak Park. He played juniors at Oak Park, right up to under-16s, Colts. He'll play for his local team. Mm. And then he goes off to play in AB. And, NAB, he's, and he's playing in a lesser standard because half the kids who should be playing in AB are playing for Carey or Melbourne Grammar or yeah, Scott. And I, and I understand, That's wrong. I understand that dynamic as well. That's wrong. It actually gives more kids an opportunity to play NAB football. Well, it does, but the the talented kids from the less privileged school system aren't getting to play against the oh, best. They do. They, I, I, I know the breakdown. The AIS and APS, or A, is it APS and anyway, APS those, and AGS? Yeah, those yeah. competitions kick in after about round six or seven, and there is an impact, but there is certainly, and then those players come back towards the finals. Yeah, I, I still, philosophically, I, I still think that's wrong. There's one stat I didn't give before, which is uh, based on those percentages I gave earlier. The chances of making the AFL statistically are four times higher if a boy is going to an independent school than a state school. Yeah, but that um, that's true. But some of those boys started at state schools and were able to, now I'm not going to say get a better education because I don't believe that, mm-hmm. but have a choice in education afforded them, private or public, because of their football talent. So some of those numbers are at the end of the road, but those kids actually are state school kids that were picked out because they were good at football, and their families would be very grateful that they were given full or part scholarships at at private schools that they could not have afforded, at least they had the choice then that they could make because of their kids' football talent. Here's an idea, are, though. Are, are, kids, are kids slipping through? Do you believe kids are slipping through the net that should be or could be playing league football or a high, the highest standard of football because they don't go to private Absolutely, schools? Absolutely, because perhaps there's a kid who shows enormous talent up to the age of, say, 12 or 13. Yep. His family can't afford to send him to a, a private school. He goes to a state school with no football program. He loses interest, loses motivation, and, and misses out on development because he's not encouraged to pursue that at school. But the article does point out that these private schools have better recruiters and recruiting networks than some league clubs used to. So that kid would be on the radar and they really do get them there under scholarships. Brendan Goddard went to Caulfield Grammar to finish his schooling. Okay, so then from a purely uh, life and academic point of view, let alone sport, how fair is that 
that the private school system is picking the cream of the crop out okay. of state schools. Right. And what about everyone who's left behind? <laughs> okay, this is just wrong. Okay, that that's a fact. Now that's true, and that would be serious if state schools placed any value at all on competitive sport. But they would if they had more funding to give them the research. I mean, clearly they have they have paired back. Their um, interest and, and resources devoted to sport because they have to they have to put it wherever possible True. and their first priority has to be education. But the the fact that there's no land and I doubt that there are any state schools going to be built anymore with football grounds on them show that education at the public level in this country we are going to have to come to terms with not just football we're going to have to come to terms with sports on ovals. And state schools no longer, yeah. Well, look, no I'll, longer appeared. I'll say this. I mean, I, you know, I've increasingly been over a long period of time now been very cynical about how this country calls itself, you know, egalitarian and land of the fair go. Nowhere is that drift away from that more obvious than when it comes to education. And you know, I guess another concern is it'll happen with healthcare soon. But you know, like. Uh, Here's an idea. You know, governments, how about uh, pumping a few less million dollars into already well-equipped, well-resourced private schools who have parents who can pay and choose to pay for their kids' private education and putting a bit more into bloody state schools? You know, look, it's just... And another point here too. Now, the... the what, foot- what, if you, what if you found out, and this might well be a fact that if independent schools had their funding cut by the government, the first thing to go would be their sporting programs. And then we don't have them anywhere. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe they could get rid of a swimming pool instead or the sauna or... But, but what if it's the, yeah, okay. what if it's no, the no. oval? Look, I realise it's not, it's not a black and white argument, this. Also, importantly, now the, the, the inequity in resources of schools is driven by government funding. So a lot of people, I, I was tweeting about this and a lot of people are saying, well, what can the AFL do about it? Well, I, I think there are things they can do. I, I think in terms of development, they can make sure that as well as, you know, players getting out to suburban clubs, they're getting inside state schools. And if they are doing that now, do it more regularly, do it more frequently, you know, pick up the, pick up the slack and also by pressuring government to put more into government schools. Because, look, rugby union, a lot of people were tweeting me about how rugby, and I don't know a lot about rugby union, but they quite insistent that the game is struggling in part because it's become exclusively the province of, you know, uh, of the private school sector in New South Wales. And it's not open enough to people from all backgrounds. Now, this is something that AFL football, which has prided itself on being a game for everybody, has to avoid like the plague. Yeah, I mean, rugby has... The the problem there is that, you know, we still have a great uptake for young kids at Auskick and kids are exposed to footy, whereas... Rugby is a school sport because you just can't drop your kid off a nine-year-old kid at rugby. Well, they used to drop their nine-year-old kid at rugby and then have to pick him up fifteen minutes later and take him to hospital. It's it's a day. It's there are big kids and little kids, and it's not a game for everybody. I don't think now rugby fans might be up in arms, but I think that's where the problem is that it's it's got inequality at the junior level in terms of playability. The one thing. I ask you is this. Growing up, everybody played footy, didn't they? Yeah. Everybody I knew played footy. And football clubs were full of kids, the good kids 
who were really good, the kids who were okay, and the kids who were no good. But everybody played football. Yeah. I get a sense now that football's really only for kids who are good at it and can play it. Like, it, it's football clubs, junior football clubs are no longer somewhere where you'll find every kid. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think Is that a, a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, oh, I think it's a bad thing. And and in the school grounds particularly, and my, my son who goes to, uh, actually, should I say, he goes to Camberwell High, um, he will attest to this, that, you know, the, the game that is far more everyone plays it basketball. is... No, well, soccer, yeah. I was oh, going to say, yeah. Sorry, because basketball... All the schools still have a gymnasium. Most schools yeah, still yeah. have a gymnasium. Yeah. And basketball and indoor soccer are huge. Yeah. All right, look, this is a, you know, we could talk more about this. It's a, a really interesting debate. Um, anyway, they're our two bobs worth on it. We need to talk quickly uh, about the draft coming up this week. Yep. Um, the, uh, I, look, I, I've written down some names, but um, what struck, struck me as I was writing down the names and the in order of selection, I think the uh, the most likely candidates to go say one, two, three are a kid called Matt Rowell, who plays for Oakley Chargers, Kerry Grammer, and goes to Kerry Grammer. Noah Anderson, the son of former Hawthorne and St Kilda player Dean Anderson, and St Kilda current St Kilda board member. Uh, yes, who also goes to Kerry yep. Grammer, and they're good mates. And if you're wondering why father son doesn't apply here, Dean didn't play enough games for either club for him to qualify. And another um, progeny of great football talent, Tom Green, who is the grandson of former Richmond Ruckman and four-time premiership player, Michael Green. Um, so they are the names you're probably, well, definitely going to hear a lot more about. Matt Rowell, Noah Anderson, and Tom Green. What struck me, though, with this finding is I think we're hearing and reading a bit less about, I think, about draft prospects now than we were... I reckon over a period of about 10 years. Um, and I reckon this started to change perhaps just in the last couple of years. And I actually think that's a good thing because, you know, you, I, my poster boy for the, the problem of hyping these guys too much is Jack Watts. He's everyone's poster boy for this. But there was a period there where we were profiling, you know, to the nth degree, every one of the top 30, 40 kids. And I think it's too much pressure. And a lot of water has to go under the bridge for this elite junior talent to become elite AFL talent. So I sort of like the level of hype that it's at now. I think it's a good thing. Yeah, it certainly put a lot of pressure on Jack Waltz. And I'm totally unconvinced about the desperation for advancing two places up the draft yeah, yeah, yeah. order. I, as a St Kilda supporter, Paddy McCartan's no longer on the list. Our num- you know, St Kilda's number one pick. Mm. Whereas we take great store and believe there's a great future for Callum Wilkie, who was picked in the rookie draft last year as a mature aged South Australian, played every game last year and is going to be a cornerstone of St Kilda's defence. I don't care that much about draft order or hyped up players. Yeah, well I mean there's so many examples, aren't there, of, of you know, guys who've been early picks and gone nowhere and vice versa. In, in fact if you jump on footyology.com.au, Ronnie Lerner has been doing a redraft series where we revisit a draft of yesteryear and order them uh According to how the you know how they'd be drafted in retrospect, having played AFL footy today, for example, um, he's had a look at nineteen ninety, 
the James Heard draft. Yep. Now, where did Heard go? I think, 80 something. Oh, I thought it was 70 something, yeah, but yeah, it, was, yeah. it was definitely lower than 70. Uh, Chris Grant, uh, we did a couple of days ago yeah. from 1988. I think he was at, he might have even been at 100. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, there are so many examples like that. I will say this from a club perspective I had a look at the first round draft order. Um, and only it's uh, there. There are two clubs that have a fistful of picks in the top twenty, which is the first round plus one. Okay, um, and all the others, well, they're either not there at all, or they're a couple with two picks. But the two clubs who I think really need to nail their draft picks for obvious reasons are Gold Coast, who have the first two picks, priority pick, and then for one for finishing last on the ladder. The first two picks and four picks in the top 20. So they've got a real chance there to uh, pick up four quality junior players. The other club that has um, dealt itself into early draft picks uh, en masse uh, status is Port Adelaide, who have three picks in the top 20, picks 12, 16 and 18. Then you've got uh, Geelong have got a couple at um, there at picks... Hang on, 14, I'm sure July, oh, and 17. Uh, Melbourne have got a couple, three and 10. Uh, Fremantle have got two in a row, seven and eight. Um, and then there's quite a lot of clubs that aren't in the first top 20 picks at all. So maybe that's the reason this draft is getting a little less cachet than others because Port Adelaide and Gold Coast aren't necessarily two of the high-profile clubs have got uh, seven of the top 20 picks between them. So having had a look at where the picks fall and you know, what sort of talent's available. How do you now feel about Gold Coast being given a second bite of the cherry virtually at establishing through young talent by the AFL's very generous accommodations that were afforded them this year? Yeah, uh, look, I it's, it's a hard one to gauge, but I, I think I'm okay with it because I, I think they're, you know, if they're not a basket case, they're pretty close to it. I mean, I, I'm appalled by it, utterly appalled. Okay, well, I'll just say this, that I think the, the cultural, cultural stuff and geographic stuff working against them is so great an obstacle that I think it would take something exceptional to get them back on an even keel. So uh, I'm not fundamentally opposed to it. Tell me why you are. Well, because they are an AFL construct and it's a business decision. Huge amount of money put into Metricon, huge amount of money put into the club. And this to me, isn't throwing good money after bad. It's throwing good draft choices after bad decisions by the club. Look, when Fitzroy were a basket case, they were obliterated. Mm. They don't exist anymore. The club, AFL intervened to to absolutely, you know, sort of um, draconianly punish Carlton for draft selections and Essendon for the Asada affair. They had no problems putting the boots into and destroying the hopes and dreams of supporters of traditional clubs in their millions almost when you consider how many people follow Essendon and Carlton. But when it's their own baby, when it's their own business, they can turn a blind eye to everything. Cheating to get, absolute cheating to get Tom Scully to the club and other skullduggery and other... Mis- to the other club, uh, oh, Sorry, to the other club. Yeah. But that, that's okay because, you know, that doesn't matter, does it? Because it's their business. It's their club. Quite frankly, this club has been poorly run. They haven't retained players. 
and now they get a second bite of the cherry that no other club would be afforded. No, I, I think that's all fair enough, and I certainly concur on the Fitzroy example. We've talked about this before. I mean, the fact that had they hung around another couple of years, the AFL's whole philosophy, philosophy changed yes. and they would have been saved, and that is a tragedy. But I don't think you can make decisions on the basis of what should and, and didn't happen 20 years ago because the landscape shifts very, very quickly and it's a very competitive sporting uh, market and lifestyle market. So um, whilst I sort of agree with the fundamental philosophy of what you're saying, I think the practicalities dictate, <clears throat> pardon me, that the Suns needed some fairly special help and there's no doubt it is very generous help. Let's just hope that this time they actually nail those selections. What I hate about this is a process that all AFL supporters should be should be suspicious of. And that is that the AFL will be able to turn around after any of these decisions are made and say, well, hang on, this was done in concert with the 18 club CEOs or presidents. Mm. And that will always be the case because they sit around, these leaders of the clubs forget that they represent first and foremost the members, constituents of their club, and all of a sudden it becomes a big business meeting over fancy lunches or bottles of expensive grog. I really believe that. And I really believe that none of the people sitting at that table have the courage to stand up and do what they are supposed to do. Forget that they actually got into that position because of their business acumen and represent their football clubs and say, hang on, you making them strong again puts us back in the queue. And that's not what my people want. They all sit around and all of a sudden everybody's a big businessman and say, yes, this is the commercial reality. You can't let them wither on the vine. We can't have another uh, Carrara and Brisbane Bears, etc., etc. Bullshit we can't. As far as I'm concerned as a St Kilda supporter, it's easy to win one out of 17, the one out of 18. And my CEO should not be there helping another club. Okay, no, passionately spoken, and I, I certainly understand that point of view. Just by the by, I'd be very interested to see the uh, school educational background of the people running AFL football now, because it's, I think well, that, you know what I is. think Jake could easily do another piece <laughs> on that, because there's a very, very big private school push at administrative level, both at AFL headquarters and within the club. Does Eddie count as one? Because he'll he'll represent the public school system and and. Maybe the pie graph will have Eddie as 80% of presidents just by volume of public appearances. Yeah, well, you know, actually, you could actually extend this to the football media too. A lot of them are coming out of the private school system. All right, uh, got to wrap it up there. Interesting uh, discussion and debate about a couple of very important topics. Uh, let's talk about some uh, life matters. Life hacks building a better world. Okay, life hacks, Funny. In fact, I heard that phrase used by someone on TV the other night, and I thought, I'm glad I came up with that. Um, but this uh, this could go anywhere, this segment, and it has frequently already in the couple of weeks we've been doing it. Uh, little observations on, on life, love, and loss, perhaps. Uh, I've got one on that today. Uh, kick us off. I'm going to blindside you with a very serious one and get your take on it. Today, that is Monday... What's the date today? The 26th? 25th. Okay, 25th. My mum's birthday, actually, so happy, happy birthday, birthday, mum. 83 years old today. That's beautiful. Oh, speaking of congratulations, mm. 
congratulations to Natalie, my wife's grandparents, who yesterday celebrated their 73rd wedding anniversary. That is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's great that I've got children, grown-up children, who have had a full life, you know, a full growing-up experience with their great-grandparents. Both are, they live together, both are independent, grandfather still drives, brilliant stuff. Let, let, let that be my first observation, that happily married... I, I really believe, luckily, they're both in good health. They need each other, but you can't... I've learnt this through both sides of the fence. You want to live long and happy, then find your find find the life partner that'll take you the, all the way. That's observation number one. It's nothing better. Well, that was just off the top of the head, was it? Well, it was, off yeah, the, yeah. but it is true. I mean, so they're proof positive of... Of, of every day for them is a pleasure with each other, and I've, as I said, I've look. I'll explain this. I've been married for twenty, getting on twenty four years, but we had a one and a half year break. Uh, the grass is not greener on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> it's burnt. Um, okay, now well, it's interesting you bring that up because I'm, I'm going to change the order of mine now. So you're you're talking about love and and long lives. Um, I want to talk about loss. Uh, I, I've had a, a terrible week, to be honest. Um, we, my partner Abby and I and our family, uh, we lost a, a very dear friend about a week and a half ago to the insidious scourge that is cancer. And uh, it was a battle she'd fought very bravely for um, several years. Um, unfortunately, as I've seen happen so many times before, um, it can uh, it can go downhill very very quickly, and um, unfortunately, she's passed away in her early fifties, leaving two teenage children, um, and uh, you know a devastated husband. And um, we had the funeral last Thursday, and I just um, I've been to way too many funerals as an adult. Let me tell you, um, you know, including my brothers and my fathers and, and several good friends. Um, but I've noticed uh, a change in funerals, and uh, it's something that I think is great, actually. Now, I remember one of the first funerals I went to was my brother's, and it was in 1995, and um, I had to deliver a, a eulogy, which was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but <clears throat> I managed to do it, and I, I sort of felt like I did him justice at the time. And... I remember after I delivered it, and this funeral, I should point out, like we we weren't a religious family, so it wasn't in a church. It was in a um, a funeral home chapel. Um, but when I finished my eulogy, there was this sort of spontaneous um, burst of applause from the audience, and uh, I, you know, I was sort of gratified by that. But I remember thinking, "Geez, that's sort of the the dumb thing at funerals," you know, and. Um, these days, it is a dumb thing at funerals. And what, what I really noticed about it, and this was a beautiful funeral last Thursday. It was, um, the tributes were, were wonderful and they had a, <clears throat> pardon me, they had a band playing. Um, and everyone who spoke, and there were about half a dozen speakers, including uh, Abby, and they all spoke about different aspects of um, 
Karen's life, and uh, you know, it was it was lovely. It was just uh, everyone sort of covered a different area of her life, and you developed a very if you didn't know her well, you developed a very well formed picture of who she was, and she was a, a beautiful, uh, you know, generous, giving, devoted soul. Um, you know, I just I can't stress that enough. Um, but the I noticed the attire of people at the funeral, like not everyone was dressed in black. I think it's you now have permission to sort of wear what you like, and so there were some some bright colours, and and uh, the people felt when people were speaking in tribute that they could laugh and and clap. Everyone clapped at the end of every speech, and there was music, and um, I think it's great that funerals have sort of broken free of that sort of yeah okay it is obviously a shocking uh you know um mournful occasion and and uh, it's about grief but it doesn't mean that the whole tone of a thing where you are actually paying tribute to a person's life needs to be dark and um you know sort of shattering like that this was a really upbeat even in such a tragic circumstance it was a really upbeat celebration and I think that's one thing that's great about society that we, you know, perhaps that's one taboo that at least that we've managed to shrug off. People, whilst dealing with grief, don't feel they have to act any particular way and be necessarily sombre. They can, whilst mourning the loss of a loved one, they can also laugh and, and, and cry with happiness at, at the great memories that person's left behind. So that's... All I wanted to say about that. It's been a shocking week, but that was a, um, a a beautiful, beautiful day and I think will help preserve the memory of a, a wonderful person. I think funeral directors, you know, businesses, and there's some well-known ones in Melbourne, aren't there, that used to be really the... just provide the services of the interment or the cremation and a very respectful service, now very much, it's not upsell, but uh, advertise about celebration of life. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tobin Brothers, for one, they advertise a lot about that. Yeah, and and I think that that appeals to people because in the end, uh, through, through the grief of loss, and it also depends on the age of the person passed and whether or not it was sudden or not as to exactly how much you can celebrate somebody's life but all that taken into account these funeral companies are now very good at being able to um, help sort of you absorb the grief and understand that there's still a life to be remembered and enjoyed yeah that's a great thing isn't it it's great it puts the fun in funeral yeah (laughs) <laughs> and, I mean, I, you know, like some people might think, oh, that's a bit macabre, but it, no, no, it's good. It, it's it's really, it's really not, you know. Like, I mean, your your last contact um, with a departed person needn't be, uh, you know, shrouded in misery. It, it can be a, a a time to remember the great things. So, all right, you're up. Okay, I'm not going to make this a regular feature because last week I spoke about for the first time seeing Carlton Collingwood when I saw it on TV. 1970 grand final. Which was great. Watched it in full and understand the game much better now. But I was, and I do this occasionally, just scouring YouTube for old footage and looking for some St Kilda stuff. And I found such a gem, it gave me goosebumps. Because I, I saw something that I'd never, ever seen before. 
So there is on YouTube from 1958, and I'm not sure even that they didn't have the last quarter live. They used to yeah, no, they used to do that, yep. So from 1958... I think it was Channel 9. Richmond St Kilda. Oh, yeah. Quality of the footage quite good. At the Junction Oval or Punt Road? Punt Road. Oh, yeah, okay. And it was the only game I've ever seen. So scores yeah. were level at three-quarter time. Yep. Uh, a full forward wearing number 17 called Dummett took control a bit, kidding, kicking to the Victoria Street end, that the northern end of the ground. Sinclair were no good in the 50s, but they were just getting better. Neil Roberts took a great mark at centre-half-back. Stevenson, a good player. Players that I'd I'd heard of, football cards read about, came to life for me for St Kilda. A number of them. A young Alan Morrow. Uh, Eric Guy off the halfback flank, as tough as people said. The first time I've ever seen these players play. Mm. A f- an interesting po- crowd ground was packed. Yeah. Huge crowd. I wonder what the capacity of Punt Road was. I know that they had crowds of like 40,000 oh, there. God knows where they went. They were just packed right up to very small area between the boundary line and the boundary, for example. Yeah. Great to see the coaches all sort of huddled near the fence, but almost able to touch the players. Yeah. Uh, the 19th man came on. I don't even know if they had 20th men back then. Oh, they did by then. So the 19th man came on for Richmond, and it must have been his one of his early games because he got a kick. And the commentator, there's only one commentator, and I'll get to that in a minute, but the commentator said, oh, good play by, and I won't say who it is at the moment. Oh, good to see him get a kick. Let's see how he kicks this young man in league football. Nice piece of play. Well well played, Tom Hafey. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Tommy Hafey playing. Yep. So he's a really young Tom yeah, Hafey. Yeah. And the commentator was great. It was an ex and killed a player and a test cricketer on his own, Sam Loxton. I was going to say Keith Miller. Yeah, Sam Loxton. <laughs> Had a couple, he? yeah. And he, he was not, as I remembered, you know, the only footage I'd seen from around then was maybe the 60s finals with, was it Jeff Raymond from the ABC? Yeah, yeah. He, very, uh, the ball there kicked. No. Jeff, Jeff used to read the yeah. uh, news. And he also read the f- football commentary. Sam Loxton was exciting. He was a good commentator. Don't think that colour just arrived with Harry Beitzel or Rex Hunt. Sam Loxton was pretty exciting. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great get. And we, we have said often there's some some incredible stuff on YouTube. And um, I think I spoke last week, didn't I, about the seventy seeing the seventy three grand final in colour. There there are a few games from Punt Road that are on there. I know I've seen the infamous. 1967 VFA grand final between Port Melbourne and yep. Dandenong, where yep. uh, I think it was Brian Buckley, Port's captain coach, was going to take Port off the ground. Um, so, yeah, look, a lot of... Um, yeah, it was good. The other game I did see just very quickly was Fitzroy St Kilda uh, in, the, in 1973. Oh, yeah, at... Uh, at Moorabbin. At Moorabbin, yeah. St Kilda thrashed them. Yeah. The commentator was Thurold Merritt and somebody oh, yeah, yeah. else... Now, David McMahon got the ball a few times, and I don't know if it was Thurold or the other commentator, every single time he got the ball, he said the same thing. I like this boy, but he's too slow. He's very slow. He's get caught. He's going to have to speed up if he's going to play any more AFL or VFL football. Really? We've played over 250 games, I think. You know, but they, he just kept on criticising poor David McMahon. Well, that sort of ties in with, uh, there's a famous story about Collingwood's um, <clears throat> Hang on, I better make sure it was Thorold Merritt. Collingwood's three-quarter time huddle at the 1981 grand final yeah. and uh, a committee man, who will double-check that, but um, had a go at a few players for not going in hard enough and yeah. uh, caused a bit of angst at the huddle and 
of course, the, the rest is Mc, sad Collingwood history. McMahon was damned, but they got one thing wrong because Rodney Galt was playing well. Oh, yeah. I said this last year, this young man for St Kilda, he is going to be a star of VFL football. Yeah, yeah. He's kicked three goals to quarter time and it's the sky the limit. He can mark, he can run, he can ruck, he can play on the ground. He's the prototype of the new footballer. Uh, not really. Well, I know where they were going with that. I, I remember he did a couple of nice things in the 71 grand final, actually. Yeah, he was a... He ended up at Carlton. Yeah, he, he was, did. He was sort of a... You know he, who he reminds me of? Reece Stanley. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good call, Pro- actually. Promised in, ver- in that marking and rucking. Yeah, well... Never quite put it all together. Yeah, and athletic, but somehow still a bit sort of unco-looking. Yeah, yeah. yeah, You had him up one end, Grambo up the other end, and that's why St Kilda were sort of limited. All right. Uh, okay, second one for me, and it's close to home, uh, literally. Chadston. Shopping centre. Yeah, that's very close to your home. It's too big. It is way too big. Now, this is... Aren't you in it? Uh, <laughs> I will be soon. Next uh, next time they expand it, I think we'll be one of the shops. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm well within walking distance of Chatty Shopping Centre. And look, this has been a problem for a while, but it is just getting insane finally. Like, I, I went to do the uh, weekly grocery shopping at, um, I think it was about 10pm on... Saturday night, um, and uh, even then, absolutely chockers, and to the point where, um, so that was Saturday night, sorry, Sunday night, I need to get a prescription filled, there's a chemist warehouse there, and I had a look, when's it open, okay, it's normally open till like 11pm, on weekends it's only 9, so I ducked up there about uh, half past 8, thinking half past 8 on a Sunday night, chemist warehouse, it's right on the corner fringe of Chatty Shopping Centre, I'll be fine. I walked into Chemist Warehouse. They were bursting from the seams, finally. They were just people... What is it about Chemist Warehouse? People walking around with shopping baskets just overflowing with proteins and pills and powders. and It is insane. Um, it is one of four stores I worked out that I'm not allowed to go to. I actually added a fifth yesterday. I'm not allowed to go to Chemist Warehouse. I'm not allowed to go to Bunnings. I'm not allowed to go to Super Cheap Auto. I'm not allowed to go to Autobahn. And I'm now not allowed to go to Kmart or Big W. Okay. Well, uh, we because, I go, go th- because I go there to buy something. And you buy something and else. And I just keep buying and buying. Well, okay. And buying. Chemist Warehouse. What What is something else you would buy there instead All right, of what I've you're never gone to? there to buy those little, you know, those toothpicks that come in seven different sizes? <laughs> no. All right. They're little. They're plastic. Yeah. And on the end, they've got a little bit of wire covered in Oh, some, yeah. Those ones. Yeah. They're, they're called um, Picksters or something. Yeah. Or, I prefer the toothpicks. They're like golf clubs. They're less cumbersome. They're like golf clubs because they come in sizes 1 to 10, so you need a full bag full. Yeah, right. And a a putter. Yeah. I'm I'm (laughs) saying I I always buy some of those. I buy some completely waste money on men's men's facial care products. There's always something to buy there. Anyway, look, I mean, yeah, I'm not... Foot care. I'm, I'm, care, not, care. I'm not telling you something about Chadson you don't know, but it is getting ridiculous. It is impossible to park to the point where I've actually tried driving up there from home, uh, not found a park, turned around and driven all the way back home again, my driveway being the first available park. And actually, finally, they're about to introduce, um, this will piss people off, uh, parking permits in our street um, because it doesn't, it actually, to be honest, I think it's a bit over the top because it doesn't always fill up. Um, Boxing Day, it certainly does. But 
Um, that's going to make it even harder for people going to Chatty to get a park. So, uh, yeah, look, Chadston Shopping Centre these days is a place um, you really grit your teeth when you go to because it's not just the shopping. There are a whole lot of other associated hurdles and obstacles to overcome before you buy whatever it is you're supposed to be buying. Okay, what I'm about to tell you is true. Only the names and places have not been changed, so the innocent has not been spared. This is a true... This happens. Happened to me. By me. All right. I, I do a lot of cleaning up around the house, and I hate cleaning the toilet. I hate that toilet brush, and I've hated it for years. I cannot believe that there sits a toilet brush and some sort of... I can't even talk about it. You know how bad the toilet brush is. Mm, well, it doesn't have to be. It's, it does. It, 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 you use... It. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I know where you It's the going. worst of the worst, it yeah. is. And I've got four kids and a wife and me, and I hate a dirty toilet bowl. And I hate cleaning it. And they're bloody hard to clean. Mm. Sometimes a toilet brush doesn't even work. And for years I've sat on the toilet thinking there must be a better way. And for years I was barking up the wrong tree because... Or down the wrong S-bend. Probably, because I was thinking maybe a, a type of spray that you can spray on it like a little... Gun. Toilet duck. No, that doesn't work. Okay. Like, uh, you need something... You want to leave the toilet in decent condition. Yeah. And to be honest, the only way I've found you could do it is by grabbing a handful of toilet paper. Oh, no. Well, you have to. Uh, if you, if and you, go under the water level. No, no. But above it, even sometimes under, it's happened. It's happened. It's disgusting. I don't want to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, well, don't. That's for my own, let alone cleaning up after my kids, let alone oh, going no. to a public toilet. Oh, no, no, no. All right. So it's all terrible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I was on the toilet two months ago. And I had a, a, a light bulb moment. It just dawned on me. And I'm sitting there thinking, of course. I'm coming about this the whole wrong way. Why are toilet bowls not made of Teflon, the coating? I've, I've seen ads. I've got Teflon fry pans where you can melt plastic onto a Teflon pan and wipe it off. Yeah. So I, told my, I came out of the toilet. I told my wife. I said, I've got a billion-dollar idea. I told her. She said, look, and her words were roughly... You're an idiot. Stop wasting your time sitting on the toilet, how to clean up poo off a toilet bowl and do something more productive, you know, <laughs> earn more money broadcasting and do it properly. Stop this obsession. You're an effing idiot. I told a mate of mine who's who's very inventive. He also called me an effing idiot. So last week, a Thursday night, I'm driving home and I listen to the ABC. Yeah. And the last news item is about some scientists at Penn State University. This is from The Guardian of last week. Scientists developed slippery toilet coating to stop poo sticking. The toilet brush need, never need leave its holder again. Scientists at Penn State have created a super slippery coating that helps usher excrement on its way without leaving a trace behind. It goes on to explain that for five years they've worked on a spray-on coating that takes five minutes to apply. It's far more um, non-stick than Teflon even. It's made out of billions of nano hairs, they call them. Tiny, tiny little things uh, that are coated in a silicon. It will require 90% less flushing power. It is predicted by scientists around the world. A lot of people don't use toilets. They, you know, in, in 
less developed countries, they have probably a, a better way of doing it just in a whole, better for the body, better for anybody who's not in that hole. But it's predicted by 2027 that every toilet will have this non-stick coating on it. So there is a fortune you might have made and missed out on again. Yes, yes. It's I, amazing how pa- often this has happened in your pa- life. Part of, me, part of me thinks a billion dollars has been literally flushed down the toilet, <laughs> but you know what? I so hate the toilet brush that I was delighted to hear that Penn State were five years ahead of me. I'm going to leave it to them, but for my wife and for Greg, who called me an effing idiot... The biggest middle finger of all time to you. I was on the right track. All right. Okay. Uh, Final one for me. I'll keep it short. And uh, there are some common courtesies in life that uh, increasingly seem to be ignored. Like, you know, getting up on public transport when there's an elderly person and no seats available. Stuff like that. One... um, which is more of a curse and more widespread finding, and it's really starting to get to me, and you might relate to this, is people who don't return text messages and emails. <laughs> I got you this weekend, didn't I? You certainly did. I was, um, I was out of contact. Well, yeah, okay. Well, if you're going somewhere when being out of contact, you let people know that you're going to be out of contact. A whole bloody point of a mobile phone is that you are accessible, and um, but it, it's more than that with emails as well. Every everyone communicates via email these days rather than snail mail. And what you know, it's sort of one thing when you send someone an email and they don't respond. It's something a whole degree more of irritation when someone emails you asking something, you respond to it, and then they don't respond to that. So they've initiated the discourse. And then that's bad. That's bad. Well, you know what? Because the other thing's not so bad. I, I didn't ask for to be permanently contactable. There are times I don't want to be emailed and SMSed. Why do I have to respond to them? Yeah, well, I, I could point out here that I did need to get in touch with oh, you. No, I'm not about you. The, no, that the was content wrong. of this program. No, no, that was wrong. And, we, we, I have a, a commercial uh, obligation to be. Fanny has you. has taken full responsibility and won't do it again, will you? No, but. I that I was wrong. I said that I was wrong. But there are other times where people just are contacting me. Yeah. And I don't want to have that. Yeah, okay. No, but I am talking about the one where someone contacts you. That's bad. You respond and then they cut <laughs> yeah, it off. Yeah, that's bad. And you know what's even worse? And I'm not gonna name names here. Hopefully uh the people concerned will be sufficiently embarrassed if they hear this. But I've now had I think three different people in the last couple of months contact me asking about uh work opportunities of sorts with footyology, I've got straight back to them and said, well, here's um, here's the situation. Let me know. No response. Um, so what do you reckon I'm going to think if they finally do respond now? Uh, I think I'm going to say something along the lines of bugger off. Yeah, yeah. It's just rude. You know, I don't know. I, I hope it's not a generational thing. But, you know, there are basic courtesies of communication which aren't that difficult to observe. You know, if you've initiated a correspondence with someone and they get back to you, you're the person who says, okay, thanks. You don't just leave it hanging in the air. Got it? Okay. Good. I think we're done with life hacks. No, we're just not. Just a very quick update on yep. my obsession with Primate TV. Yep. Went to bed on Wednesday night. And I was a bit upset. I genuinely was upset. And Natalie, as I came to bed, said, what's the matter? I said, you wouldn't understand. She said, try me. I said, okay. 
Shifu is not responding to the antibiotics and there's a real danger that he could pass away. And she said, who's Shifu? I said, the baby gorilla on, on Ape Planet. I, you don't know. I, so don't ask me if you don't know who the, the names of the gorillas and orangutans that I'm interested in. I got the old effing idiot again. <laughs> yeah, okay, no, fair enough. All right, uh, I reckon it's time we uh, delved into popular culture, finally, and step back in time. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Okay, I'm really enjoying this segment already, Finey. Uh, hopefully you guys out and girls out there are as well. The year we have chosen, well, I have chosen because it was my turn, is 1985, Finey, and that, of course, is the year of an Essendon Premiership again. But that's not why I chose it. In fact, there was no particular reason I chose it. I just thought, well, we've done 1993 and 1978. Let's go 80. So I went smack bang in the middle of the 80s. 1985. So, uh, if you're not familiar, first time you're listening what, what to this. What happened segment, in the footy that year? I, I did. I did that. Essendon won the premiership yeah. with one of the greatest sides of all time. Beat Hawthorne by 78 points in the grand final. I'm looking forward to 11 goal two last weeks, quarter. Two weeks from now, 65. We're doing. Uh, 1897. <laughs> no, no, no. Imagine no. um, <laughs> 1897. All right. Uh, let's start with music now. Um, this is an interesting one. I'm going to. Uh, I know you haven't chosen these, so just a, a couple of albums of note that came out uh, in 1985. There was uh, locally "Listen Like Thieves" by NXS, uh, Simple Minds, who were a, a very a favourite band of mine until this album, where I think they started to really lose the plot. Once upon a time, I agree. They started off. I oh, love, I love oh they were an first. edgy, new wavy yeah. yeah, rock yeah. band. They, they were part of part of my musical awakening yeah. away from top 40s. But Yeah, no, once upon a time they'd gone all stadium rocky and, yeah, yeah. and yep. yeah, uh, jumped the shark there. And uh, another huge album, 1985, Tears for Fears, Songs from the Big Chair with Shout. Shout. And Shout. Uh, did that have Everybody Wants to Rule the World? Oh, I should have looked that up. Anyway, it was a massive... So you liked Tears for Fears? Well, yeah. That, I didn't. No, well, 85, that, I was definitely in a synthesizer stage. And that's what's interesting about my choice of album, because this is an album that I didn't know in 1985. I got into this band um, probably in the late 90s, a good 10 years at least after they'd broken up. And uh, a bit of a cult band, but a pretty well-known cult band and one which has spawned uh, further bands and one of the great solo artists of our times, I speak of Bob Mould, and the band is Husker Du. Mm-hmm who uh, were massive on the American college circuit the same time as R.E.M. were. Um, They both sort of went major label at the same time. R.E.M., of course, became an absolute music monolith. Huskadoo descended, a trio, I should add, descended into, uh, yeah, drugs and um, disillusionment and uh, split up in 1987, unfortunately. But a great band, and uh, Bob Mould, the front man, uh, two singer-songwriters, both sung, both wrote songs, Bob Mould and Grant Hart, the drummer. Bass player was Greg Norton. Um, but an amazing band, Husker Do, incredibly prolific. Um, they were only around from about 1981 to 87, so six years, but they produced seven studio albums, including two 
Like some of the bands have got to wait like five years between albums. These guys put out two in one year, both in 1985. And they started out a very punk, really punk, speed, thrashy punk sound. Ended up, their last album, Warehouse Songs and Stories, sounds very like R.E.M., very polished and poppy. Uh, this is about halfway. The two albums they put out in 1985, one was called Flip Your Wig. The other, which I've chosen here, is New Day Rising. And it's you can still hear the punkiness of it. Um, Bob Mould's signature sort of distorted guitar sound, very fuzzy. Um, but the pop sensibilities are definitely there as well. So New Day Rising, uh, songs you may know if you're familiar with them. Uh, Girl Who Lives on Heaven Hill, I Apologise. Uh, Celebrated Summer was quite big. Um, what else? 59 Times The Pain. They're a band who probably only got played in commercial radio here with one song, finally, which was Don't Want to Know If You're Lonely, which mm-hmm. was off their next album. Um, but have a, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a sample of this later. But uh, one of my favourite bands of all time, Husker Do, and New Day Rising is my album. What's, what's yours? Just, just on Husker Do, you yeah. say they had a big college following. Yeah. The worst music, there's different genres of music. Now, of course, there's some, I, I, you know I've got a broad church. Yeah. There's one, I, I'm not into Christian rock, I'll tell you that. <laughs> there's one type of music I hate. Sorry, you said Chris. You, we You're all, thinking all, of Seth. Can, I, can I just sing the line? Yeah. Sent down from heaven, the spirit and the glory. <laughs> Okay, go on. Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> Whenever I see Jesus up on that cross, I can't help but think that he looks kind of hot. <laughs> All right, um, go on, go on, sorry. I can't stand American cult music born out of college followings. The famous, of course, Grateful Dead. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, played. That's like stoner rock, isn't it? Well, Grateful Dead played forever, never had a song on the radio because they're no good. Fish, P-H-I-S-H. Equally huge following in America. Never, you'll never hear them because they're atrocious. Insane clown posse. Oh yeah, <laughs> I've heard of them. Yeah, they're, their supporters are called Juggalos. They're the idiots that put on clown masks. And yeah, yeah, scare right. I was people. Thinking clown masks. Yeah. But they only drink a soft drink called Fago, <laughs> which is supposed to be the worst soft drink of all time. F A Y G O. All right. So, what's your album? Okay. So I'm. 1985 was a very very big year for me. I went away in May to play cricket overseas and I stayed travelling for seven months backpacking. And the music in my Walkman was important to me. And so I had Cafe Blur by Style Council and I was very pleased that during 1985, whilst I was travelling, they released a, their second album, Our Favourite Shop. And Paul Weller, this time really true to his roots of anti-Thatcherite, lyrics and singing in that sort of new, a, a bit of new wave, that mod new sound coming out of England. Now, just quick background for those not familiar, uh, Paul Weller, of course, was part of another English trio, The Jam, yep. who are very important in 70s, late 70s, early 80s, UK punk slash pop. Alternative music. Yeah, I really like The Jam. And Paul Weller's an important musician and remains seminal to that change. And it's time with Style Council. Look, I love Style Council. Uh, I like their slower songs. Um, and 
one of my favourite songs came on this 1985 album, Walls Come Tumbling Down. Oh, yeah. yeah they no. had other good songs on it, The Lodger, um, Shout to the Top. Oh, yeah. More poppy. Is that on this it's one? It's on too, Cafe Blur oh. and on. And oh, it's on both? Yeah, I think so. Okay. But Walls Come Tumbling Down is great. It's uh, I think a lot of people know the song. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, no, I've got plenty it's of got, airplay it's here. It's got good rhythm. It's poppy. It's dancey. It's fun. But it's also got pretty full-on lyrics. A great film clip sung in a pub with... Clearly, with politically um, savvy but disenfranchised workers, and un- not, it's a really interesting film clip because the people watching them watching them play this song in a pub, and I think it's sort of live. But they're not there for the music; they're there for the message. But the music is good too, and I love. He's got a backup singer called DC Lee. She's beautiful. Yeah, S- yeah. sings beautiful backup vocals and um, hum- harmonizes. But normally harmonising up to that stage was things like shoo pop 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 or she loves you and then the background yeah she loves you she's singing you know strong political messages it's great it's you know the uh, I think her her recurring line was the kingdom will crumble the republic will fall <laughs> unity remains all powerful <laughs> it's great do you think if uh, Rage Against the Machine ever went for female backing vocals they would have used her. No. Oh, they could have. I mean, <laughs> she's beautiful and she sings beautifully. Yeah. But it's certainly not the, you know, the harmonettes that Ray Charles used. All right. So the album is? Our Favourite Shop. By the Style Council. Yep. And uh, Shout to the Top and uh, Wars, come, Wars, come, Wars tumbling come Tumbling Down. down the, feature. The, the feature song. All right. Film. Um, now, I had to, I couldn't. Do, in in looking for my favourite film of 1985, I also stumbled upon one of my favourite worst films of all time. Good. And undoubtedly, that has to be St Elmo's Fire. Oh, okay. there, <laughs> but that was the that was the time of those. Yeah, Brat Pack. Yeah, Breakfast movies. Clubs. Yeah, and that's, yeah uh, uh, who's in that again? Emilio Estevez and always. Yeah, it, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of Elizabeth Shuey. Yeah, it? It, yeah. It's, in retrospect, it's a lot of. Self-important, self-interested, yeah. upper, up, upper middle-class white nobodies complaining about their life and wondering about their place in the universe. And I've always um, remember the song from it, and the great the um, the, uh, the song is St Elmo's Fire. Oh, Man in Motion or something, I think it's the subtitle. But it's shot in the pub, St Elmo's Fire. But isn't St Elmo's Fire some chemical? It's, it's... No, no, it's a, it's a pub. It's a pub where they all yeah, meet. Yeah, but the actual saying almost fire. I'll look it up, but it, it's something. Don't in- worry about it because it's not even a good one. But the, oh, yeah, the but f- I'm just saying that that movie. You know what? I always used to think this movie'd be great if just out of nowhere the entire they're all in a pub and the pub gets hit by a meteor <laughs> and the entire cast dies. Well, you, you've got to look up the film clip. It's got I can't remember the guy's name, John someone, but he's got the beard and the big hair and everything, and he's walking around the pub and they're all sitting around drinking and he's slapping them on the back and gotta be a man in motion all I need is a pair of wheels take me where the future's firing seat almost fire that's shocking terrible Uh, I've talked more about the worst one than the best one I couldn't go past this finally there were some big movies in 1985 Um, I don't know what you've gone with so oh yeah I do actually so I'll rattle off a few Cocoon Witness The Colour Purple uh, Mad Max, Beyond Thunderdome, The Falcon and the Snowman, Pritzy's Honor, uh, Woody Allen, Purple Rose of Cairo. But I could not go past a certified box office smash. Fantastic movie, Back to the Future. 
It's a great, great movie. movie. Great Michael movie. J. Fox, of course, playing Marty McFly. Christopher Lloyd playing Doc Brown. Leah Thompson as Marty's mum. Crispin Glover as his dad, George. And uh, the unforgettable Biff Tannen, the bully, by Thomas F. Wilson. And, of course, for the two people who've never seen this film, uh, what happens? Uh, Michael J. Fox gets inadvertently catapulted back in time and inadvertently... Uh, by interfering in history, ruins the meeting of his parents. And uh, anyway, spoiler alert. Well, that's <laughs> I'm taking everybody, a fair know, bit more. everybody knows the premise. Well, anyway, it is a but it's a great premise. It is a really smart premise and um, uh, great acting performances by Lloyd and, and and Fox. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it's just a, it's a ripper. And the sequels, actually, unusually, the sequels weren't bad either. But Back to the Future, the first one, is a ripping film. And uh, I gave it four stars, Mark. It is a great movie. I I love movies that sort of become culturally part of our lot. Significant. Yeah. And I think that is. Oh, it is. No, absolutely. And yeah. time travel, there's a lot of discussion, especially now in chat rooms and with two nerdy sons, they're often involved in what is what is the best representation in in film and TV of time travel, what breaks rules, common sense rules of, of actual physics. Yeah. And they like, they, they give that a thumbs up. It's not yep. brilliant. It, technically it's not brilliant, but it's a very good attempt. Well, you want time travel. I've got another very, very honorable mention on that score. Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Idiot. Really? <laughs> I love that film. It's great. Um, now, by the way, St. Elmo's Fire yeah. is a weather phenomenon in which luminous plasma is created by a coronial discharge from a sharp point. Lightning, I think, being one example of it. Well, St. Elmo's is a pub oh, where but, all those preppy kids gather. Yeah. Okay. But it's you know, it's given more gravitas by, okay, the, okay. by the scientific backdrop. Middle finger up All right, to you. which means I'm going to have to sing again. St. Elmo's Fire. I love my movie. All right, what is it? Are you done with yours? I am. Okay. I'm not trying to be pretentious. I do like Japanese movies because I love Akira Kurosawa, Seven Samurai, Yujimbo, etc. But I also like their comedies. When they're good, they're great. I love Japanese humour. And as a foodie, one of the great foodie movies was made in 1985, and that movie's called Tampopo. Have you heard of Tampopo? I think I have. And I know, well, you know, my dad was a film critic. He definitely would have seen it and presumably loved it. Okay. So and it's Kurosawa, is it? No, 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 no. Oh. No. It's a, it's a comedy. Kurosawa didn't delve into such things. I have seen The Seven Samurai. Okay. So it's, oh, do you like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's the star of the movie is Nat, Natinu Miyamoto. Yep. And she's actually married to the director, Juzo Itami. And or was married, he passed away, but appeared in many of his comedies, including the famous A Taxing Woman. She always plays, she's diminutive, yeah, and she always plays that um, demure Japanese, either widow or single woman, who is actually of great resolve and body and strength, even though she's small and physically insignificant. I thought that was all Japanese women. I'm saying, but she's very powerful and, and, you know, reaches her goals by sheer determination. This is a classic comedy, but it's one of those quest movies. She's a widow who has thrust upon her by the death of her husband, the family Noodle Ramen Shop. Her nickname's Tampopo, which means dandelion. She's a little thing. And she has to raise a son. And a truck driver and his partner pull up one day 
have soup at the ramen noodle shop and she's very, very keen on feedback. And he says that as a truck driver, he's eaten ramen all over Japan. And he says it's adequate, but it doesn't have any soul and I won't be coming back. And she's devastated wow. because she has to raise a son and she'd just taken over this store. She tried hard. Uh, something happens. He ends up having to stay there the night, not in her bed, but she, she, he wakes up and she's begging him, show me the truth of, of ramen. And the story is her quest by meeting famous people, observing, being a spy, doing all different things to learn to make great ramen noodle soup. Concurrent to that story are little vignettes. Like she'll pass somebody in the street and then for the next three minutes there'll be a, a, a short story based on food of their lives. Okay. Just interspersed. And do you know what that is? That's a, a, a an, not an analogy, it's a symbolism of an actual bowl of ramen noodle soup because you put things in ramen noodle soup. Can I just say, I, I feel like I've eaten a lot of, uh, culturally, I've eaten across the world, and I, I love, you know, uh, pho or, or yeah. that's not how you pronounce it, yeah. But... I've never got my head around exactly what ramen is and which culture it's... Well, um, Japanese. It's only Japanese. Well, don't... Uh, I've had a feeling sort of Malaysians well, delved they, they into make, it as they, well. No, they so make what, well, what, Okay, yeah, I've had luxes. So, so ramen what is ramen? All right, so ramen is... It's, the noodle's very important. It's, it's an al dente wheat noodle. Yeah. And so the noodle has to be of, of good consistency. The broth is key. And it's made, there's different ones. There's a seafood one, pork bone, but the broth has to have this. Now, to Western tastes, the broth can be a bit funky. I what don't do you see, mean funky? Um, it's, it's not like a, a, a pho, which has had that beautiful clear chicken, you know, yeah. or beef flavour. Yeah. This has flavours that are, uh, to some noses, you know, to some tastes, not off, but but. Challenging. Is it a broth-like miso soup? For no, it's, it's more challenging. There, you, can, you know, pork has quite a strong taste. We yeah. don't use pork bones. Yeah. To make soup. Yeah. It's a there's a pork bone broth, so it has flavours that are, you know, musty. Let's just say. Okay. To, on top of that, the noodle has to be put in at exactly the right time to maintain the heat. There, there's a laws to these. Now there are ramen noodle soups in Melbourne, uh, shops in Melbourne that have opened up in the city. If you go to the city, there are very few restaurants that have queues. They're almost all ramen noodle. There's two 24-hour ramen noodle shops now in Melbourne. Whereabouts? Uh, near Little Burke Street on Russell Street is one of them. Yeah. 24 hours. You're only allowed to go there if Andrew's Hamburgers is closed. Anyway, back to the movie because we're running out of time. Well, these little stories are great because they are supposed to be like a bowl of ramen noodle soup because you get your noodles and then on top other things, some shredded pork, uh, some salted a medium boiled egg, all the little things that make it great. So the director was saying, the movie is the bowl of soup and the noodles, and I'm going to put in little bits of flavouring. It's a great movie. I watched it again because we were doing this. Mm. I was watching it last night. I fell asleep because I was exhausted. I got about a quarter of the way through. I'm going home to finish watching it <laughs> because I love this movie. It stands the test of time. So how do you spell it? Tampopo. T-A-M-P-O-P-O. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's yeah. No, I definitely remember cool. hearing it's of very, it. It's a really cool movie. Yeah. All right. I might look up. Very if, passionate. I might actually it. look up if my old man reviewed that. Sounds like Please the sort do. Of, it sounds like the sort of thing he would have loved. Tampopo. All right. TV show. Uh, we'll do this quickly. Um yeah, some interesting shows that emerged in 1985. Moonlighting with um, 
Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd, that yep. sexual chemistry uh, series of The Twilight Zone. Um, who's that, uh, Sterling? Rod Sterling. Rod Sterling, yep. Um, Behind the store. But I couldn't go past this one. What became an iconic American TV show. Look, I'll be honest, I didn't watch it all the time, but every time I saw it, it, it never failed to give me a few laughs. What was good about this show, it, was, it really was groundbreaking. It was a comedy, but it still dealt with serious topics. And some of those topics were things like people coming out uh, with their sexuality, uh, same-sex marriage, homelessness, HIV AIDS, um, euthanasia. Do you know where I'm going with this show? Sesame Street. Uh, no, no, not quite. Was it Donahue? That, that, uh, no, it is the Golden Girls. I thought it was Donahue. Uh, no, I like the Golden Girls. Oh, Golden Girls is a great premise, and, and again, I'm sure everyone's familiar with it. But uh, four, um, well, three uh, sort of middle-aged women and one elderly woman who live together. Who in real life was younger than a couple of the older women. Uh, hang on, say it again. Oh, yeah, it's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the cast, of course, uh, we had B. Arthur who played. Um, Dorothy, uh, Rue McClanahan, who played Blanche, the Southern Belle, uh, Betty White, who played Rose, the sort of slightly dim but uh, dear-hearted one, and uh, Sophia, uh, Estelle Getty, who was Dorothy's mother. And um, they were pretty ribald at, at stages. Uh, anyways, a, a funny show that lasted seven seasons and 180 30-minute episodes. Pretty good writing. Uh, proven acting performances, and uh, look, if you had to while away 30 minutes sitting in a, a doctor's surgery or something watching a TV program and you had to choose a sitcom, you could do a lot worse than the Golden Girls, so I went with that. My memories of the Golden Girls were that a word that I'd never heard of, apparently in Florida and Hawaii particularly, they don't have patios, they're out on the lanai. Really? <laughs> yeah, that never heard area that. outside is called a lanai. Okay. The original casting had Betty White as the sassy southerner. Yep. And the reason they didn't use her because she was on the Ed Asner show as a pretty out there, independent, sassy type playing a, a regular guest starring role. And they thought it was too similar. Yeah. So they went for Rue McClanahan, who played it brilliantly. And apparently there's a bit of, quite a bit of creative tension between B. Arthur and Betty White, yeah. too. Yeah, they were both big stars going back prior to TV even, stage and movie. and but I think Betty White's still alive, the only cast member still alive, of the main stars in it. And I think it's a great program. It's one of those ones that stand the test of time. Yep. There's yep. always room for old women on TV. Yep. It's, and made older women sexy. It was important. And uh, does your show stand the test of time? My show makes it because it was such a great, gross disappointment. I hated it. I was almost... I, I wanted to go and sabotage it till I found out it was made in Queensland or New South Wales because it was It's a Knockout. Oh, yeah. Billy Joe Smith. I was Billy somebody, some round-faced fat... Hey, oh, hey, sorry. I he, shouldn't he, say that. He died a few months ago. <laughs> Billy and to Billy's family, I'm sure in his personal life, he didn't annoy me as much as he did on this show because I didn't know him. But this was... This ruined my favourite TV show because of I, I'm not an idiot. I didn't love almost anything goes 
as a fan. And for those unfamiliar with the concept, uh, slapstick obstacle course. Yeah, the, these shows exist even to today. You know, they're popular from Japan, I think, originally, oh, yeah, where you put people through difficult obstacles. Japanese course. one, you've got a broom Some, shoved up your ca- Somebody's castle, it is. Someone's firing bullets at you. Yeah, <laughs> correct. But Almost Anything Goes was such never again TV. It was on Sunday night. It was filmed in Nunawadding. Yeah. In the grounds or the car park of Channel, Channel 10. 10. yeah. And it was going to be, it had three stands for the supporters. You see, it's a knockout was Queensland versus New South Wales. Yeah. It, you know, it was big. How much better was almost anything goes? Do you remember the teams in that? Nah. Gippsland, the Gippsland Dairy Farmers Social Group this week <laughs> take on Melton's Melton's Mothers Club, or you know, oh, yeah. Melton Chess Club. Yeah, yeah. Or there was a footy team, like, you know, East Burwood, East <laughs> Burwood Football Club taking on, but it was great who would they, they take on. The Rotary Club of Bairnsdale. And the great thing was, it was filmed rain, hail, or shine, and it was often in pouring rain. I once counted a crowd of six, literally six people in the grandstands. Hang on, are, we, are by, we now talking about it's almost like a, almost anything almost, goes? Okay, hosted by Tim Evans. Do you remember who the oh yeah the American the, guy? Yeah, American yeah. transplanted down under. Do you remember yeah. who the judges were? No, they were the oh, two best judges ever. Bert, Bernard King, no, uh, Ron Barassi and Brendan Edwards. <laughs> oh, really? yeah. He's in the water. <laughs> then you could play your Joker, at which point Sean Kramer, <laughs> an Irish. Short Irish comedian with Sean the Leprechaun would come on. Hey, he's going to play the Joker. I'm the Joker, and I'm not going to fall in the water after slippery. Oh, splash! Which is great, but you're supposed to be talking about it's a knockout. It's a knockout was the jazzed up version of this. It was bigger, so it's supposed to be bigger and better, and it just proves you know what? What? Bigger and bigger, more production values does not equate to better, and you know why? Why? Because in the case of Almost Anything Goes, worse was better. Yes. They didn't understand what was good about it. Yes. Well, we've certainly got to get a good insight these days into worse on TV, don't we? Oh, this was... Unfortunately, without irony. I just loved the night. It was completely pouring and all the hosts were wearing plastic ponchos. Rob Barassi was like huddled under a plastic poncho. <laughs> Did he go in the water and Barassi said, I don't think it matters. Everything's wet. <laughs> That's probably, he was probably doing that in 1981. That's probably why Melbourne only won one game for the season. <laughs> All right, that's it for vinyl and video this week. Hope you enjoyed our trip back to 1985. I think it's time we ranted, Finey. Let's do it. On Footyology, the rant off. All right, we're getting straight into it, Finey. No mucking around. I'm counting you in. I've got no idea what you're ranting about, but I'm sure it'll be fascinating. Three, two, one, rant. I feel loath to do this, having started the program with what seems to be, unfortunately, the demise of state schools, and we were talking about football. But with that as a backdrop, I cannot let, let this pass because on Thursday night, I went to my son's valedictory dinner. I'll say the school, Glenora College. Well done to Glenora College and to everybody involved for getting Zane over the line because we honestly didn't think he'd make it some years ago. He's matured into a good, serious adult and well done that he finished year 12. I'm sure he'll pass and go on to do great things. Well done, Zane. But the valedictory dinner, in inverted commas, was at the Glenora City Town Hall. No dinner, just some finger food and cold drinks. That's not a problem. Sitting there for an hour and a half listening to speeches can be a problem if the speeches are terrible 
And it becomes even more of a problem when it is quite clear that the school principal, the school vice principal, the member, local member for Glen Ira in state politics, in state parliament, and the representative from the SRC Council and the person from Glenora College, five speeches, all use the same friggin' template of how to write a speech off the internet. They must just go to the first listing, how to write a speech, and the template, they all went exactly the same route. That is, blah, 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 how wonderful it is, we wish them all the best, and then into these pathetic quotes. Where do these quotes come from? If you want to write a good speech, become quotable yourself. They lie because they say, I was reminded of a quote that I really like by Angela Mayo. No, you weren't. You read it on the internet. I was reminded of a quote by uh, Whoopi Goldberg, by or by powerful women, it seemed. Oprah Winfrey gets a run. I think Wilma, Fred's wife from the Flintstones, was in there. <laughs> and the quotes are always the same. It's sort of, let the individual shine through the power of the group. Let learning be the light. Let the blah, blah be the blah, blah. And, of course, all former lake speeches have to end with a gratuitous poor joke. And they all had their little funny ha-has. Nobody laughed. <coughs> Everybody goes... <coughs> <coughs> but the highlight of the night was every student getting on stage and being warmly received for being... A graduate, well, they haven't graduated yet, for finishing Year 12 at Glenora College. It went well for about half the students. Remember, there's a, probably about 80 students in Year 12. Because then the giant screen behind the students, which had their image, unfortunately was one behind the student that came on. So Asavrava Bandayaka, pretty girl as she is, is Zane Fine. Zane Fine becomes somebody else. And I think it sort of summed up maybe, maybe it's public school education. Maybe it's my son's lot in life. And that is, it's all a good try, but it's all obviously pretty well half-assed. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you haven't got any other children at Glenora College? Yeah, and who's that? Lucas. Uh, good luck, Lucas, because uh, if your principals are hearing this, uh, you might be in for a hard couple of years. Hey, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Thanks, Dad, says Lucas. Oh, well, look, don't, you know, really. All right. No, 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 I get it. Try harder. Get Uh, your own quotes. Okay. Count me in. One, two, three. I'm pissed off with fashion, Finey. Have you? I'm talking about clothes, not music, in which I'm determined to remain doggedly stuck in the 1990s or thereabouts when people actually still play guitars, bass and drums. Now, we all know music has turned into a complete wimp fest since then, and I reckon clothes have gone the same way. As you know, I'm a man of simple clothing tastes. Give me a music t-shirt, a big pair of shorts, maybe jeans if it's a touch chilly, and a pair of thongs, and I'm fine. But even these essential items are proving hard to find these days. T-shirts shouldn't be a problem, surely. But every time I try to pick up a few bargains now at one of Chadson's 345 clothes stores, I can't even find a T-shirt that's going to at least hang relatively loosely from my admittedly pendulous gut. Everything now seems to be tight fit, which is okay if you've got a reasonable set of guns and a belly that doesn't cover two postcodes. But what about blokes like me who've gone to seed just a little? I tried on a few of those skin-tight tees the other week, and it was just sad. 
Well, unless I was planning on doing one of those celebrity I'm heavily pregnant but still beautiful magazine cover pics, one of the store attendants looked so worried she must have thought my waters were about to break. Shorts? Well, that was a problem too. I'm sure it wasn't that long ago I picked up a few pairs with a comfy, elasticized waist and drawstring, which gave big men like me somewhere to at least expand after going that extra bit of cake. Now, no elastic to be found in any waistlines, my friend. It's all tight waists and buttons. I've already had several pop out with enough velocity to take some poor kid's eye out. Same deal with long pants, except they have the added problem of the straight leg factor. Or should that be the skinny leg factor? Now, about the one part of my body these days in which I still have a little pride are my legs, particularly my calves. They're toned, sculpted, and big. But do you reckon I can get them into these dacks with lower legs so narrow they must have been designed on matchstick men? No way. These things cut off your circulation before you've even pulled the bloody things up. Which brings me to feet and the question, finally, of this decade. What the hell ever happened to socks? They're pretty useful items, you know. Which idiot decided men somehow look sexier showing off their stupid hairy ankles? Probably the same one who thought this was some daring new innovation and we hadn't already been subjected to Crockett and Tubbs getting around Florida crime scenes in boat shoes sans a pair of holeproofs finest 30 years ago in Miami Vice. All I can think of when I see young guys now wearing those punty little cotton foot coverer things is Don Johnson wearing a shiny cotton jacket with a t-shirt, sporting a three-day stubble, and with bloody Mr. Mr.'s Take These Broken Wings going on in the background. And that's imagery, not to mention a sound no one deserves to have inflicted upon them a second time around. Rowan, I've got to tell you something and show you something. Now, this is very important. What? Did you used to watch The Simpsons? Yes, Do you remember when Lisa sometimes. Lisa didn't want to go to the dentist and he pulled out the big British book of smiles to scare her? Right. It was the smiles of British people with bad teeth. Okay. I rarely wear socks. Do you know why I don't wear socks? Uh, why? Because I'm not. I was going to actually use the F word. No, don't. I'm lazy. I just, you know, I've got to put, <laughs> I'm too lazy just to put the socks on. I like just smashing my feet into runners of ruin. You know, I'm, it's just laziness. Ugh. Have a look at what years of not wearing socks has caused. Oh, uh, bunions. Oh, look at the fungus on the, 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 oh, the big no, toe. Oh, look at it! Look at it! No, it's revolting. No, thanks. Everybody out there, make this a say, make this a warning. Oh, no, no. Young men. You know, I, am, I am dogged by athlete's, athlete's foot. I'm constantly Yuck. using tinea derm. No. You know, it's itchy. It's, Enough. Don't do it. I don't want people to turn off just yet. No, no, but don't. Wear socks. Yeah, wear it's too socks. Late. It's too late for me. You wear socks. Well, they just look so But I do have something for them. you that you can get online. Right? Do you wear thongs? Yes, I'm wearing them now. Okay. Are they Havianas like everybody else? Uh, no, mine are Crocs. Okay. Have a look at these. They're good. They're quite cheap. You get them online. They're called Archies. Oh, yeah. And they're, as I said, like Havianas, but they've mould proper arches. Yeah, yeah. So they've got proper, like the insert of a proper shoe. So and when you wear them, does it make you want to go, everything's archie? No, but if you wear them all day, you don't get sore feet from walking around in those thin, flat thongs. All right. They're much better. Archies. Archies. I am not a, in any way connected with Archies. Okay, but we are very much connected with Andrew's Hamburgers. And one, 144 Park. Bridport Street, Albert Park. Where the best burgers keep Best company with the best builders because Nick Spartels loves and Hardwick Bilco. Nick Spartels and Hardwick Bilco for the best house on the block.
All right, we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Now, Fonny, you know uh, I was a bit shirty with you because uh, you went AWOL yes, for I'm several days, mate. as you are prone to do. Mate, so, mate, mate. Okay, no. I apologise. What did you say? I said I apologise. How many times do you want me to say it? Well, it's timely you said that, Fonny, because what right, we... Because uh, I needed a 40th apology. Well, uh, yeah, you got to, it takes a while to get back in my good books, but also because... Uh, we finish off with music, as you know, and uh, my album of 1985, the year in question, was Huskadoo's New Day Rising, and one of the great tracks of that great album is, in fact, called I Apologise. We'll see you next week. Baby!